two, one. I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook, a new podcast from the Las Cruces Sun News in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this episode, we're joined by Sun News education reporter Miranda Sear, a Report for America fellow now in her second year with the newspaper, to look at a couple of big issues facing Las Cruces public schools. The first, naturally, is the impact that COVID-19, and more specifically, the Omicron variant, has had on schools throughout the district. We also talk about what's being done to address the substitute shortage, the pending demolition of Columbia Elementary, and the upcoming one-year anniversary of the untimely death of Superintendent Karen Trujillo, who was struck and killed by a vehicle while out walking her dogs on February 25th, 2021. Miranda's working on a special project to mark that anniversary, so we'll talk to her about her reporting and the mark Dr. Trujillo left on her family and students and educators around the state. Hi, Miranda. Thanks for uh, taking some time to chat with us today about your reporting. Hi, I'm happy to be here, Damien. So the Omicron variant has wreaked havoc at schools across the district basically since the beginning of this semester. How is LCPS adapting to COVID? Yeah, so there's a lot of different things that LCPS is doing right now. First of all, they already had the enhanced protocols in place for any schools that exceed 3% or 5% positivity which basically means three to 5% of the school's population has COVID within the last 14 days. So um, with those enhanced protocols, the vast majority of schools in LCPS are using those right now. I think there's only six schools in the districts that is under that 3% threshold. Some of those enhanced protocols include limited or no visitors, you know, children going straight to their classrooms and not stopping in any common areas before standard transitions for dismissal and entry time, um, staggered recesses. Um, Some students will be eating in their classroom, not in the cafeteria. It really depends on school to school. Has there been any talk about air filters in classrooms? I know in a lot of places around the country, um, they're building those those boxes with HEPA filters and box fans. Is there any talk of that at LCPS? I haven't seen any additional HEPA filters being discussed at all in any of the board meetings. I know that they replaced all their HVAC systems with the new required air filtration systems back last semester, I believe. And that was in line with the public education department's requirements. But I don't think there's been any changes for that yet. But I do know that the district has created a new medical advisory team. And that just got formed this past January. So it kind of involves a bunch of local healthcare professionals and people from the district discussing the district's COVID-19 protocols. And they're discussing what the best moves forward are for keeping children and staff safe. What other sorts of things will they be tasked with? 
I'm not sure. They're kind of going to be talking about the protocols, determining what the best practices are going to be. It's a really new advisory committee, so there hasn't been a lot of developments. I know they're still adding new healthcare professionals into the group as well. So I know parents are applying who are in that healthcare profession. And here we are two years into this pandemic and the information about the virus continues to evolve. So I right. imagine that they've got to really work to try to stay up to date on, on the latest information uh, there as well. Yeah, definitely. I know something that they talked about in a previous board meeting was um, what masks will be best used for students and staff. I know they were talking about how with the new Omicron virus, the cloth masks aren't necessarily as effective as other types of masks. So I know this past week they got a shipment of K95 masks that are for staff members, but nothing as far as what students are going to be required. When the issue came up at the most recent board meeting last week, there was a little bit of tension that arose around the issue of COVID-19. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think at pretty much every board meeting now, there's always going to be tension around COVID-19. Um, I know there's a lot of parents who are worried about children getting tested or vaccinated without parent permission, but all evidence that I've seen from the school district um, and everyone involved with that, you need parent permission for vaccination or testing of a child. And what was it that uh, board president Ray Jaramillo said about about it, it seeming almost counterintuitive, like we were moving in the wrong direction? Yes. So President Jaramillo was very worried about the rising numbers, especially in the past couple weeks. The district's numbers have been up very high. And with the new PED directions, COVID-19 guidelines are almost um, becoming less strict. And so President Jaramillo was wondering if we are moving in the wrong direction as far as you know, lessening those protocols while COVID-19 cases are increasing district-wide. Basically at an all-time high. Yeah, by far, a lot. Um, I know in the past couple weeks, there's been record-breaking numbers per day as well. So the district also recently changed its online COVID dashboard. What can you tell us about those changes? Yeah, so the new COVID dashboard protocol is a little bit different, which I know it confused me and I know it confused some community members as well. So I talked with Deputy Superintendent Gabe Hawkes, and he explained that the new accounting for COVID cases on the district dashboard is looking at what the date was that the student or staff member tested for COVID-19 rather than the day that they reported a positive case to the district. So you might say that if a student reports today that they got a positive result back for their COVID-19 test, in the past that would have been reported today. But now they're asking students and staff what day they actually tested. And it's supposed to be a more accurate representation of how long they need to quarantine and more accurate as to how many students or staff in a specific location are in that five-day quarantine mark. So, 
looking at that chart, what we were doing is we were logging them on the date that they were reported. Uh-huh. So we huddled with our team and kind of tried to think through like, okay, so like looking at the data, is that that's true? I mean, the, all of the data is true and, and the number of cases across the board, from what we do in our, in our daily briefing numbers mm-hmm. and these numbers, they're, all the reported numbers are exactly the same. So there's not a discrepancy. We're, we're pulling from the same report for those positive cases. So if you jump to the snapshot on 124, we've made an adjustment on our Power BI system to report positive cases the day that they are that they that they reported a positive test result. Okay. So as we look at the, that other chart, so at that 246, we could have had a positive, they could have had a positive test result anywhere. And I'm just going to say, let's say between December and, you know, mm-hmm. over the winter break to the 10th. What we did was we went back and, and we adjusted, we made the adjustment up front so it was closer. And I want to say it was that Friday and um, talking to our IO folks. But it, it, when we changed the system, it adjusted the numbers moving backwards as well. Oh, okay. So it just recalculated all those numbers. So that's that's really what the difference or the discrepancy is on that with those two pieces there that it just really it, it went back and it's basically a spreadsheet with two columns the date mm-hmm. reported and then the date tested. Okay. So that the top one or the the lot the, the latest one or the the one twenty four would have been the date that they were tested um, positive. The one below would have been the date reported. Okay. To- yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um, I suppose that that kind of begs the obvious question about contact tracing and, you know, going back and, and letting others know that they may have come in contact with somebody who tested positive on Tuesday. Right. Yeah. So I do know that the school district will privately let individuals know whether or not they've been in close contact with someone who did test positive. And that is something that's all completely private for um, HIPAA reasons. But the new test to stay program that has been implemented by the PED and also the district allows students and staff, if they are unvaccinated, to test. I think it's one day, three days, and six days after the um, initial contact. And if they don't have any symptoms and they come back with negative tests all those days, then they can continue going to school. One of the other things that has been in the news recently is the shortage of substitute teachers. In fact, New Mexico Governor uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham spent a day in an elementary classroom substituting herself. They've also brought in National Guard members to kind of help fill in for that. They're fully what's the what's the word? They're fully licensed, right? Yeah, so they have all their licensing and training and background checked. It then goes to the district individually to finish out their training. They have some hourly requirements as far as getting into the classroom and observing. I know LCPS has gotten two National Guard members who were admitted into the district last week, and they were doing their required observations. (laughs) Yes, they were doing their required observations last week. And I believe the first day that they were allowed to actually start teaching after those required observation hours was on Friday. Excellent. So, you know, part of this podcast is kind of looking at the reporting process and peeling back that curtain. 
Is that something that you intend to follow up on as they get into classrooms and kind of see how it's going? Yeah, definitely. I definitely plan to reach out to the two National Guardsmen through the school district and see if they'll be able to talk with me about their experience. And who knows, we might be able to get some more National Guards members in the district coming up as well, which would be, I know, a big help to the district. The district has uh, requested... <laughs> has requested more than two of them, right? Yeah, so um, with talking with LCPS, I don't think they had a specific number in mind, but yeah, they definitely need more than two substitutes right now. I know that their ideal number of substitutes is 1,000. Um, oh, my. Like around 700 right now. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> I, had, I had no idea that it was that high. Yeah, and... Has that has that gone up as a as a result of COVID that they need more substitutes now because they have more teachers who are out? Yes, definitely. I know that before the pandemic hit in 2020, there were about 1,000 substitutes in LCPS's pool, but because of the pandemic, all those substitutes pretty much lost their jobs. And then they've slowly been trying to bolster that pool of substitutes over time. And their initial goal was 700, which they've met now. But because of the influx of COVID in the past month, teachers are not able to be in class as frequently anymore because of quarantine requirements. So the schools need- right. And it, it, in that case, it may not even be that they are out sick with COVID, just that right. they're required to quarantine because they were exposed. Yeah, exactly. I remember that the superintendent of Gaston Independent School District told me that, you know, we may have zero cases within the student body. But if 40% of teachers are positive with COVID or have to quarantine for some reason, then they can't teach those students. That's really interesting. So after kind of shifting gears, unless you have something else that you think we should talk about that is COVID related, I'd like to talk a little bit about Columbia Elementary, which is it has sit unused for three and a half years and was plagued with persistent mold problems for decades before that. And now uh, the the school finally has a date with the wrecking ball later this month. Tell us what we know so far. Yeah, so it's super exciting news for Columbia Elementary and that community. I know that they've been waiting for this for a long time, but um the LCPS Director of Construction, Gloria Martinez, talked to the school board last week about an estimated demolition start date, which is February 15th. So it seems like everyone is really excited for this to begin. Demolition is going to go on for several months. And during the demolition time, they're also going to be starting the design process of the new school. Which is kind of, at least last I knew, is kind of adjacent to the current property. Is that correct? Yes. So <laughs> the reason why they're completely destroying and rebuilding the school instead of just fixing certain parts is because I believe it's something wrong with the foundation of the school and building on top of it would create more problems potentially in the future. 
So instead, they're starting from scratch and they're going to see how it goes from there. And it's it wasn't in a great location. It was kind of prone to flooding right. in its current location. So my understanding is, at least last I knew, they were planning on, on moving it about, oh, a quarter mile to the south of where it is right now. Right. So as they start construction, what what is the timeline? What what are their future plans for replacing it? Yeah. So after demolition, the design is actually expected to be completed in August, and then they're going to start construction in May of 2023. And then from there, the construction is estimated to be completed in August of 2024 in time, hopefully, for the 2024-25 school year. That'll be an entire cohort of students who started school at Centennial High School, uh, elementary students who started at Centennial and never set foot in an elementary school, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty crazy. But yeah, I know it's going to be something that, you know, the district has been working on for a really long time. And finally, things are starting to happen, it looks like. I want to talk a little bit about Karen Trujillo. You were were coming up on the the one-year anniversary of her very untimely death. You recently wrote a story. What can you tell us about that, that project? Yeah, so... I'm working on a big project for her, the one year mark of Karen's passing. And I've been able to talk with her husband, Ben, and then two of her children, Tara Lynn and Tavin. And, you know, they're still obviously healing from that and very heartbroken. But I think they're very happy that the community still remembers Karen as the great leader she was. And they're excited for what's to come. And yeah. In terms of education, like when making decisions, like she would really distinguish between doing what's right for a kid and kids. Because if you do what's right for a kid, you're probably, it's probably not going to be right for the majority of them. And, and that's the reality, right? Of what, where you're, you are in education. I mean, you have to, I mean, whatever your guiding principles are, like, like it can't be, you can't change direction just to, for one little, for one child, right. even though they're all very important, but when yeah. you make these big decisions, yeah, it's gotta be right. So that kids first, which goes with that one, right. for sure. She was very about empowering, like to, and for me, the other thing that, that like, I think she believed in people, especially young people, like um, even a lot of times before they believed in themselves, but she kind of fostered that, like, you can do this. Right, like if I believe in you, you should believe yeah. in yourself kind of thing. You know, and, and she'd explain stuff in a way like, look, it's possible. I know it's this big mountain of stuff, but mm-hmm. you're just doing, just do this, yeah. you know, and, and, yeah. and made it like. She made it look easy. Like she made it like when she talked to people like, hey, it is possible. It's not as hard as you think it is. Yeah. Type of thing. So then they believed that they could do it. I think mainly when it came to like college and that kind of, or even not even college, but like trade school or whatever. Right. And that not one that was like her big thing when she was at NMSU and even at the state like 
yes, we want them to further their education, but that doesn't mean going to college. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, not one thing fits every single kid. Like, give them their options and then encourage them to go chase what they want to do. And Miranda, my understanding is that this is part of a larger project that the USA Today Network is doing for all 50 states. And I understand if you can't say much more at this point, but I think it's really exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting. I've gotten some photos and videos also that the district has provided for me, and I'm excited to put that together and try to honor Karen as best I can. She was definitely taken from us too soon, and she was so admired as a leader. What do you think her legacy is? Yeah, I mean, so with talking with her family, it seemed like her legacy was students first, kids first. That was something that was always the forefront of her mind. She had told me that many times in the past that no matter what, we're always going to put the kids first. So I know that she had really pushed for in-person graduations last year and that push to get students back in soon, as soon as it was safe to do so. And it's unfortunate that she wasn't able to see those happen, but you know, they did work out. And I think that a lot of people do commend Karen for everything she was able to do in her time with LCPS. Certainly uh, a champion for students, a champion for children, not only through her tenure at LCPS, but also at the public education department as secretary there. And before that, as a professor in in MSU. Yeah. And she was even um, an interim associate dean for the College of Education as well. She's done so many things for education. I know she's also started Educators Rising in New Mexico. That was, um, yeah, that was when I first met her back when I was working at the paper before they were really trying to kind of nail down the actual number, the teacher shortage at the time across the state. And there simply weren't numbers. So she really dove into that project. And her goal was to not only quantify the number of teachers that were needed, but also to do what she could through Educators Rising to meet that need. Yeah. And I know even apart from those big goals of having, you know, more teachers and getting those numbers up, I know that Karen really wanted to change the narrative around a career in education that, you know, you can have a really great career in education and you can make money doing so. And it can be very fulfilling. Right. Kind of bringing a certain nobility to it that at the time might have been lacking, uh, or, or at least in the public's perception. Yeah, exactly. And I know with the new Dr. Karen Trujillo Memorial Foundation that her family is trying to put together, they're hoping to continue that changing of the narrative and providing resources for Educators Rising and other groups like it in New Mexico. Right. And making more teachers in the meantime. Yes, definitely. Excellent. Well, Miranda, is there anything that you'd like to talk about regarding LCPS that we haven't touched on? Um, well, I know that two weeks ago, the district reinstated some more intense athletic and activities protocols. And that just kind of aligns with the strict nature of, you know, trying to slow down the spread of COVID-19 right now. Um, and I that includes socially distanced seating, 
the no. closure of concession stands? Yes, exactly. Right. Fantastic. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today and, and to explain to our listeners kind of how we go about our jobs day to day, you know, what that process, that reporting process is like. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to talking with people and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on so we can explain it to the community. Thank you, Miranda. (laughs) Thanks, Damien. We hope you'll keep an eye out for Miranda's upcoming story on Dr. Trujillo and all of Miranda's coverage of education around Doniana County and across New Mexico. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. Please subscribe to the Las Cruces Sun News to read all our local reporting, brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces. Until next time, I'm Damian Willis. Thanks for listening.